0: Good morning, church, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, we uh, can keep Danny in our prayers. He's resting this week at the beach with Janice, which is such a good, a good thing for him to do and something he's done for so many years and it's really set an example for me. Listen, there, there are just some things in life that we dread doing. I'm talking about the feeling that you get when you're driving down the road in your car and the check engine light comes on and you're like, no, I have to go to the mechanic. Or how about when your internet goes out and you know that you're gonna have to make that phone call to whatever company uh, provides internet to your house and it could be a 20-minute phone call or it could be like two days long, it feels like, okay? It can just be something that you dread. I dread that moment when my license expires and I know I'm gonna have to go to that place called the DMV, right? The DMV, a place I do not want to go, or if I think about this last year as an extrovert, anytime I hear the word Zoom, I just get like anxious, right? Like, no, not again, right? Like, Zoom is just something we've had to deal with this last year. Perhaps more than any of those things, I dread flying on an airplane across the country with my toddlers, okay? It is an experience, and it's one I experienced pretty recently, uh, actually, two weeks ago. My wife, Anna, and my two sons, Abe and Shepard, we flew to California to go to my brother's wedding. And uh, Abe is three years old and Shepard turns two next month. Uh, But that doesn't stop him from being two. I think you know what I mean there. In fact, I had a worship care volunteer last week tell me that the will is strong with this one. Those are the exact words. Uh, And I said, thank you. May blessings be on you, okay? Uh, He can be strong-willed. So we knew that taking him on an airplane for three hours, particularly uh, that leg between Colorado and California was going to be rough. So when Shepard began to become kind of restless and began to get a little bit worked up, our worry levels, like our anxiousness started to go up a little bit. And that, that kind of anxiousness or that restlessness, it turned into crying. And then crying turned into like a full out, like throw down, scream two year old blow up on the plane. Okay, and all I could do was hold Shepard for an hour while he screamed and writhed in my arms and Anna and I passed him back and forth. I mean, people were looking all over the plane back at us like, would you just press the off button on that thing? And if you know where that off button is, please find me after the service and I would love to, uh, to know that information. It was a long couple of hours. Talk about dread, talk about dread. And then the most amazing thing happened. In the midst of the silence, Ladies and gentlemen, we've begun our descent into into Ontario. Please raise your chairs into the full upright and locked position and make sure all your carry-on items are stowed in the seat in front of you or in the compartment above your head. It was like the hallelujah chorus was being sung into that space in that moment. I mean, it was like, we are going to make it. And I can remember Anna leaned over to me and she said, we are never doing this again. Right? There was like a force that you're literally, it's, you know, it's my wife, but I'm like, yes, ma'am. Right? Here's the problem we were going to have to do it again. Five days later, five days later, when I think about that flight and that experience with Shepard on the plane, I'm reminded a little bit of the last year that we've walked through. I'm reminded of the political and the social unrest, the global pandemic, which has kept us apart of all the different kinds of loss that we've experienced, loss of time, loss of significant moments in our lives, even the loss of life for some of us. And it's like one, it's like we've been on this long flight with a screaming child, and it felt like it was never going to land. And then two weeks ago, they lifted the mask mandate and it was like the hallelujah chorus. I can see your face this morning. I can see a lot of your faces and you can see my face. It's like the pilot came on over the intercom and said, we're about to make our descent. And all of us were like, no way, we made it. We survived. The plane is actually going to land. And now we're all sitting on that plane just waiting for that fastened seatbelt sign to turn off so we can grab our baggage and get off as soon as possible. There's just one problem. Life is full of hard long flights and church this will not be the last flight that we have to board this will not be the last time that we have to fly on a hard long flight in fact Jesus told us in this life you will have difficulty so it may not look like a global pandemic but the obstacles in life are not going to disappear when the pandemic is over so we have to ask this question as the church What can we do to be more prepared the next time we board that plane and take another flight? Or we can ask the question this way, how should believers respond when we again find ourselves in a season of difficulty and uncertainty and trial? What are we going to do? We're going to look to Psalm 63 to answer this question this morning. If you have your Bibles, Psalm 63 is where we're going to be this morning. I love Psalm 63. It's been a a passage to me that has helped me in the different seasons of my life. I love it because the language is so tangible. It's like uh, really kind of has handholds to the language. But I, I like it even more because of the background on which it sets. See, Psalm 63 is written on the background of 2 Samuel 15. David was ruling over the kingdom of Israel. He was doing so as a good king. But we know that David's life wasn't free from mistakes. In fact, we know that one of the biggest mistakes, the biggest sins that David committed in his life was his affair with Bathsheba. And we know that God had said, because of your sin with Bathsheba, you will face judgment. And that judgment will come in and among your own family. And so 2 Samuel 15 tells the story of David's son, Absalom, beginning to, quote, gather favor among the people of Jerusalem. Samuel tells us that he would stand at the gate and the people would walk in and he would talk to them and tell them, oh, it's all right. They would tell them kind of their their frustrations or, or the justice that they wanted to see in the city. And he would pat them on the back and he would say, oh, it's okay. All the while, he was getting ready. He was gathering a following of people so that he could overthrow his father's throne. And so we see later in the chapter, all of David's advisors come running to him and they say, Absalom has this army in the city of Hebron and he is on his way here. He is going to take your throne away from you. We have to do something. What are we gonna do? And David, in his heart to save the city he loved, the people in that city, and more than anything else, his own son's life, he fled, he ran. And into the hill country of Judah, out of this great city as the king, he runs into the wilderness. And it's in these hillsides, unsure about his future, unsure what will happen with his son, taking off on a long, hard flight that David sits down and he writes this psalm. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. As with fat and rich food, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Here we see David in the wilderness hiding for his life. And he decides to write down this prayer to God. So what can we learn about the hard flights of life from David's prayer this morning? I think there's one kind of uh, foundational truth we can take away from this passage and then we're gonna talk about how it kind of fleshes out. That truth is this. Believers can better face the hard seasons of life by growing in their dependence on God. Believers can better face the hard seasons of life by growing in their dependence on God. Seems like a simple statement, but how do we do that? How do we exercise dependence on God, especially when things seem out of control? And I think David shows us three ways in his prayer that we can do that. There are three ways that we can do that this morning. The first is this, that we must recognize our need. We must recognize our need. Here, David begins Psalm 63 and this plea, this prayer to God, and he says, oh God, you can feel the emotion, my God, Earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly, I'm longing for you. I need your help. I need you to meet me in this place. He describes himself as a man lost in a desert in need of water to quench this intense thirst that he has. He uses his physical surroundings around him to describe his spiritual need from God. He wasn't just thirsty for water. He needed God's help so he goes to God and he says, earnestly, I seek you. What is he asking for from God? He's asking for God's presence to be with him. We see this as he's longing for God. He says, God, be with me. I don't know what's going on and I don't know why, but would you be here with me? I'm seeking you. I'm seeking your presence to be close to me. Imagine this for a moment. David once, probably never longed, for someone's presence, for someone's company to be with him. He was the king. He ruled with authority, and when he wanted something, he asked for it, and it was given to him, and he held all power. He never felt alone and isolated, but here we find him saying, I'm I'm alone, God. I'm feeling lost, and I don't know where you are. Will you be with me in this place? When he felt alone, he desired for God to be near but he desired for God's power to be with him as well. Can you imagine as the king being powerless to defend your own throne? When Absalom came to take away his throne, David knew that it was a result of his own sin and that if he did anything about it, if he took any kind of action, then his son's life was in danger. He must have felt so powerless. What can I do? How can I respond? All I can do is hide. And then in verse two, there's this moment. He says, but I've looked upon you in the sanctuary and I've seen your power and your glory. In a moment when David felt powerless, he says, God, I need your power. And then he says, God, I need your love around me. Verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life. I know that my love for my own son is so great that it's hard to imagine that there's anything I wouldn't do for him. And imagine the brokenheartedness of this father hiding away in a cave, knowing his own son was seeking to take his life. He must have felt so unloved, so alone. Wondering, questioning, what did I do wrong? How did I misstep? Where did I go wrong as a father? But then he says, but God, I know your love. Your love is what? Steadfast. It's better than life. When I don't feel loved, I can still praise you because your love is better than life. I can bless you for it as long as I live. In your name, I can lift up my hands. In these requests to God, David's prayer wasn't centered on what he had to do to overcome his need. His prayer is based on what only God could do in the midst of his need. When he felt powerless, he asked for God's power. When he felt alone, he asked for God's presence. When he felt unloved, unseen, he knew that he could trust in God's love. It reminds me of my son, Abe. Uh, He's kind of had these moments as we've uh, taught him to sleep in the big kid bed, all right, that he has these night night terrors. So we'll put him to bed, we'll shut the light off and uh, I'll hear probably 10 or 15 minutes later, daddy, daddy, daddy. And so I'll, I'll go up the stairs and I'll walk in. I've always thought it interesting. The first thing he says to me when I walk in the door is never, will you turn the light on? But what happens is the minute I open the door, he stops crying. Why? Because the minute my presence enters the room, all of a sudden things are, things are a little bit more okay. Okay. He knows his daddy is here. And in his eyes, his daddy is strong. He doesn't have to be scared anymore. In the midst of the darkness, he knows daddy's love is great for him. I'll do anything for him. And he feels safe. He feels someone heard me. I cried out. Someone met me in the darkness. And here David is in this dark room having this night terror saying, God, where are you? I need your help. And God's power and his presence and his love come in. Dependence on God begins when we humbly accept our own limits, when we realize that God can meet us in our trial in a way that only he can do. He does things that only he can do. That only God will never leave us or forsake us when things are hard. That only God's power is strong enough to sustain us in situations when we feel powerless. Only God's love is steadfast. Only his love will never let you down. It's interesting. There's an interesting irony in this passage. It's that when we grow in our dependence on God, we realize that we were never made to be independent of God. It's when we grow in our dependence on God and our leaning on God and our faith on God that we realize we were never meant to be in a space where we weren't but we were built for it, to lean in to God's power, his presence, his love for us. And maybe you look at the last year and you are sitting here this morning and you just feel tired. You're tired of feeling alone. You're tired of feeling isolated. You're tired of feeling powerless in the face of the pandemic and the things going wrong in your life. You're worn out. You're carrying this weight here this morning you're trying to carry something you were never meant to carry. And God says, "Call on my name, and I will meet you. I'll be with you. I'll give you power. You'll feel my love. We recognize our need, but we must also, to grow dependence on God, we must also reorient our hearts. There's a really interesting transition that happens in the passage here, from verses one through four to five through eight. It's as if David's panicking a little bit. He says, oh God, you're my God, meet me here. I'm alone, I'm scared, I'm frightened. And then as God's presence comes into his situation, it's like he takes a seat and then he writes verse five. My soul will be satisfied. With fat and rich food, my mouth will praise you. Notice the future tense language. It's not happened yet. But God's presence with him in the moment is causing faith to happen in his heart in such a way that it's being reoriented. If you're a hiker in this room, you have used a compass at some point. It's a very important tool to use in the wilderness. But the important thing to know about a compass is that its declination has to be set correctly for it to take you in the right direction. And its declination is the measurement by which it connects or it gets lined aligned with magnetic north. When your compass is aligned with magnetic north, based on wherever you are in the world, you can know for certain that north is north and south is south and west is west and east is east. And it keeps you from being lost. It keeps you from wandering away. And that's what's happening in verse verses five through eight. David pauses to reorient the declination of his spiritual compass in light of this new spiritual terrain that he's entered into. He stops and he reflects, he looks at his own heart and he reminds himself of what he knows is true about God. He reorients his heart back towards spiritual north and he says, these are the truths I know about God and I believe, I believe that they are true even now. David's statements of faith are, are in what God will do based on who he knows God to be. He believes that God will satisfy him even when he's lost everything. He believes that he will still feel joy when he remembers the fact that God's been faithful in the past. God's been good in the past. He praises the Lord because he was his help before and he believes God will do it again. This is countercultural. The culture tells us That we should give our heart, our feelings center stage. That we should embrace however we feel or whatever our desires are and run after that full blast. That we should let how we feel in any given situation determine our reality. But God says, how I feel is not who God is. David says, how I feel is not who God is. God is the same. And I won't let how I feel in this situation determine my view, my faith. In God, he pauses as his feelings must have been running wild and he insists, God will satisfy me, God will be praised, God will uphold me. He sets his heart on spiritual north so that he can walk in the direction he ought to go. And sometimes when we're walking in a trial, we're on a hard flight, questions arise in our hearts. Is God, is God really enough? Will God really satisfy me in this? Does God really like care and see me in my hurt, in my sorrow, in my grief? I'm calling out. And then we're like, no, we can't, we can't ask those questions and we try to push them down and push them down. But instead, David combats those questions in the midst of his flight with the truths he knows that he can trust in about God that God is a good God, that God is a loving God, that he hears the cries of the righteous, that he will punish the wicked, that he's close to the brokenhearted, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. So maybe you look at your last year and you feel like you're just wandering, wandering around in a wilderness, a wilderness of loss, of heartache, of emotions you just can't seem to shake, You're wondering, does God really see me where I am? Does he really care? Is he really still in control of this? Can he be? There's a sweet truth for you this morning. Our God is the same. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he does not change. And although we can't always understand, we can trust that God will be who he's always been. There's one more way we can grow in our dependence on God this morning. And that's by remembering our hope. When we remember our hope, David finishes his prayer with another pause. And then there's this extremely confident language. All of a sudden, he is proclaiming the judgment of those who have brought this scenario on him. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth They'll perish by the sword. Their bodies will become like food for jackals. David is saying with certainty, absolute certainty, that these who have brought wrong against him will be judged, that God is just and his justice will come forth. And then in that same breath, that same confidence, he says, and God will exalt the righteous. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt There's this belief that even when things seem completely upside down, the wicked are are prevailing and doing whatever they want to do and the righteous are being condemned. He says, but I believe God will exalt the righteous again. David's faith in God's holiness and his justice, it's the form of dependence on God because David's acknowledging even though I'm the king, there are some things that I can't make right myself. Even though it's my job to sit on the throne and judge, there are some things that are beyond me, but nothing is beyond the judgment of God. Nothing will escape God's justice and his holiness, and he will make wrongs right. He will heal hurts in our hearts. May not be in the way that we want. It may not be in the timing that we desire. But our hope this morning, church, is not in the way that it will happen, but in the only person who can do it, and that's God. He'll exalt the righteous in the midst of trial, and he will condemn the wicked. We grow in our dependence on God. When we recognize our need, we reorient our hearts, and we remember our hope in God. I'm a goal person. So I like having like three, three little guys I can write down and then like post that guy on the fridge and then check it off. Like nothing feels better to me than checking something off a list. I am as type A as they get. I love to check things off. And then I look at this list and I'm like, I could check those off. I could do those this week. I could post it on my fridge. I could go and I can do it. But when I take an honest step back and I look at my heart over the last year, I realize I fall incredibly short. I realize that, What I perceive as dependence on God is only calling out to God when I feel like I can't carry the load anymore. That calling out for God in the midst of my need looks like me walking and then crawling with this load on my back while everything around me is on fire. And then finally, finally, when things are just chaos, I say, God, where have you been? Why aren't you here? And never once did I cry out for help. I realize that when I try to orient my heart towards spiritual north, and I try so hard to follow God and do all the things I'm supposed to do, the questions still come God, why is this happening to me? God, where are you? God, why aren't you answering my prayers for this pain to stop? I realize that when I try to walk the direction I should go, I still veer off and get lost somewhere in the wanderings of my own heart. I realize when I look around me at the culture and the place we are as a nation and all of the different things that are going on, that I sink into this like hopeless pit where I'm like, can it really ever turn around? Are we are we past the point of no return? will there ever really be justice for the wrong things all around me? And I find myself questioning, well, God, is he really just? Is he really gonna do it? Is it even possible anymore? But there's one who, when we wander in the wilderness, meets us in our desert, who sees our spiritual thirst and is living water to us who sees that our flesh is failing, that we're starving and we can't take another step and he comes as the bread of life. There's one who left behind the glory and the power of heaven to take on flesh, to feel hungry, to feel thirsty, and who meets us in the deepest needs that we have before we even ask for his help. His name is Jesus There's one whose spiritual north was always true, who was so satisfied with God, so in love with the person of God, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, who never swayed in his love for God and his love for people, who became himself a promise to us, a new covenant that we would find purpose and forgiveness and assurance. His name is Jesus Christ, There's one who looked into the hopelessness of humanity and the human condition and saw us running headlong after the things that we should never have run after, leaving God behind. And then took on flesh and went to a cross for our own rebellion. Dying the death we should have died and raising from the dead. And on that cross, he said, it is finished, hope could never be taken away because of one person, Jesus Christ. So how do we endure the hard flights of life? We endure because he endured the cross. We express our need because Jesus addressed our need. We center our hearts on spiritual north because he's never left. We trust in the hope of the restoration of all things because it is finished. It doesn't mean the flights of life won't have hurt. It doesn't mean they won't be hard. It doesn't mean our heart won't ache for the presence of God to be with us. But it does mean that with every flight we take, James 1, 2 will be true for us that the, the trials of life, the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness that we'll be just a little bit more ready for the next time we board that plane. And then Revelation 20 tells us about a day when the planes will be grounded and we'll be in the presence of the king, the one who met our deepest needs And in his presence, there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. We'll be free. And we'll be free because he has set us free. This is our hope, church. This is the hope with which we worship this morning. That because of Jesus, we'll depend a little bit more every time we board that plane until finally... We're grounded in his presence forever. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our soul longs for you this morning. Father, every heart in the room is in a different place. Some feel so close to you. Some feel so far away. Some place all their trust in you and hope for the future. And some this morning are wondering if it's even believable anymore. God, we come here in this place and we pray, we ask, we depend on you. It's because of Jesus that we can worship in this place this morning. It's because of Jesus that we can endure trial. And our hope our praise, our worship, our attention, our adoration, our devotion, it's all on Jesus, the one who met us in the desert and quenched our thirst in ways we could have never imagined. So God, as we respond this morning, wherever we are and whatever trial we might be walking through, I pray, we would lift the name of Jesus high and we would depend on him. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.